Hello, and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andrew Matišák, and I work as a deputy head of foreign desk in Slovak Devi Pravda, which, by the way, means truth, and it's not Russian Pravda. Professor Seth Kotler is a historian at Willamette University in Oregon, so as we talk about American politics, his answers contains many historical references. It only helps to better understand what's going on in the U.S., The midterm elections take place on November 8th, and President Joe Biden said that democracy will be on the ballot. Is this a bit of a political exaggeration, or is it really happening? And can American democracy properly function when millions believe in an alternate reality? Yes, we have been talking about the Republican Party and its voters. Listen to our conversation, also featuring Seth's cat, Audie. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on coffee. Thank you. For the link, see also a description of this episode. And now, up to the new debate. Said, what do you make out of the attack on Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's husband? Is this a sign that violent political extremism is really on the rise in the US? It's clear, and the perpetrator said that, that Nancy Pelosi was the intended target. It's important to distinguish between a kind of coordinated, intentional political violence and individual acts of violence that are inspired and informed by political rhetoric that political leaders put out. It seems like this individual was not part of any group, like a paramilitary group, like the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys. Um, so there are many groups on the right allied with the Republican Party who are preparing to engage in political violence, whether they will or not is another question. And so that's that is certainly a threat to a democratic society whenever there are people allied with one political party who are interested in using violence as a means of political change. But this event that happened with Paul Pelosi seems to be something more along the lines of what we might call stochastic terrorism, which is acts of violence and terror that carried out by an individual who's not part of any group necessarily, but who has been inspired to an act of dramatic political violence because they believe that the world is so unhinged, that everything is so completely broken, that there's no other way to bring about change in the world other than to engage in some kind of self-sacrificing act of violence. Um, oftentimes, these folks are quite delusional, kind of irrational. You know, So I'm thinking of the Tree of Life synagogue shooting, which happened in Pittsburgh a few years ago, or the shooting in Buffalo that happened at a supermarket in Buffalo about a year back. And in both of those cases, those were far more deadly attacks. And those were attacks, likewise, by people who were, you know, kind of lone wolves on their own. But the worldview that inspired and motivated those acts of dramatic 
murderous violence was a worldview that was pretty congruent with what one would just see anywhere on a Republican Facebook feed or on Fox News. Um, it was maybe slightly turned up in terms of explicit anti-Semitism or racism, but all this, you know, the, this narrative that America is being swarmed by foreign invaders who are ethnically or racially different, who are inferior, who are trying to replace white people, all of those narratives and, and themes inspired those acts of violence. And so I, I guess I would say that. And then the other piece that is also really troubling is the way that most Republican elites, not all, but most <laughs> responded. Yeah, this, is, this is something you're reading my mind, because this is something I wanted to ask that how do you assess the reaction of the GOP to the attack? And I know that uh, I mentioned Twitter and on Twitter, you were commenting on what Donald Trump Jr. did. He wrote that he has his Halloween costume ready, showing the picture of the hammer and underwear as right. the reference to the right. attacker was reported to be dressed only in his underwear. It is not true, but still. Right. On the other hand, right. some some Republican leaders like Mitch McConnell or Mike Pence, they condemned the attack. So how do you assess the reaction of the GOP to the attack? And I think that perfectly encapsulates it, that there's still there still exists a GOP establishment that understands the kind of normal rules and norms of life in a democratic society, just as, for example, in, I believe it was 2017, there was someone who had been a Bernie supporter who went to a congressional softball game where there were many Republicans and shot a bunch of people. And Bernie Scale is the high-ranking Republican in the Congress, so. Right, exactly, yeah. And the response of every Democratic leader that I know of, there wasn't a single Democratic leader who said, who laughed it off or said, oh, I want you. Everyone took it incredibly seriously, denounced it as the act of political terror that it was and said it was completely inappropriate. And also not like Bernie Sanders had been talking about how Republicans are evil, you know, and want to destroy America and are agents of Satan or, you know, the, the, or this rhetoric that the Republicans use to describe Democrats is not at all the same as the rhetoric that Democrats use to describe Republicans. They criticize them. They're harsh about them, but they don't call them evils or enemies of the Republic or anything like that. So this is, again, where it's, it's a kind of false equivalence. But to me, the, the reason why someone like Donald Trump Jr., what he does is because he understands what motivates and drives a large number of people who are in the base of the Republican Party. And that's hatred, absolute hatred to the point of being kind of sociopathic hatred of their political opponents who they regard as their enemies and who they regard as evil and whose lives they see as not as worthy and important as their own. Donald Trump Jr.'s response to this and the response of other, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene or, or the, the media figures who basically run the show now for the Republican Party, the, there's that sense that like the, this is the engine that drives Republican political messaging is just the desire for vengeance and violence against the people they perceive to be their enemies. And, you know, the misogyny that's been around, you know, that was part of the anti-Hillary Clinton thing that was also part of the Nancy Pelosi hatred, the kind of homophobia that undergirds the hatred of San Francisco, which is another kind of submerged theme in all of this, the idea that somehow, you know, San Francisco is a disordered place where the and and so this kind of these acts that happen in San Francisco are understandable because there are 
because supposedly there are gay people there. And therefore, this proves that San Francisco is itself a place that is more prone to this kind of thing, and that somehow it's Nancy Pelosi's fault and other Democrats' fault. None of it is logical or <laughs> makes much sense, but um, it, it does make sense in the kind of worldview of some of the people in the Republican base. And then there's the, the propagandistic elements of it, right? Where there's Occam's razor, which tells you that the simplest interpretation of a situation is probably most likely the most correct one, that Paul Pelosi probably did not want to be hit in the head with a hammer, and that probably, <laughs> and that the, the broken window in the house suggests that uh, this wasn't a consensual, right? So all of the, uh, everything we know about it makes pretty clear this was just a home invasion where someone came to assassinate Nancy Pelosi and she wasn't there and harmed her husband. Doesn't seem very complicated. This is very true. But the fact is that conspiracies regarding what happened to Paul Pelosi are already widespread. Rather than just seeing the story for what it seems to most likely, most obviously be, folks immediately just start circulating the wildest, what if kind of evidence-free kind of supposed stories from media outlets that aren't actually media outlets that are just propaganda mills. And, you know, it used to be the case that people in positions of cultural and political authority were a bit more careful about just making stuff up. Um, especially making stuff up that would seem to normalize or justify acts of political violence. And my sense is that I mean, certainly there are some people on the left who would do such a thing. Those people are not in positions of great authority and power in the Democratic Party. But the people who do seem to be in positions of great authority and power in the Republican Party have absolutely no hesitation um, circulating what they know to be false and fabricated stories um, just in order to try to get control of and put confusion into the bloodstream of our political conversation. You know, so they don't need people to actually believe that Paul Pelosi, that this was a gay love affair gone wrong. They don't need people to actually to believe that. They just need them to question what seems to be the most obvious meaning of what's happening there. And they're very good at it. They're very successful at it because ultimately... I mean, there's a kind of nihilism that underlay a lot of the kind of Republican political culture, unfortunately. It's quite incredible that within three days of the Paul Pelosi attack, possibly millions in the world's foremost power have come to believe a completely different version of reality, despite the fact the attacker made his thought process and beliefs clear to all in his own words. This is the observation of Shayan Sardarizadeh, a BBC journalist who reports on disinformation and conspiracy theories. And he has also asked if the US democracy can properly function in such an environment. Can it? <laughs> it's really hard. I mean, if you can create this alternate reality and get people to voluntarily vote on the basis of that alternate reality, and then impose that alternate reality uh, through policy, especially voting and electoral policy, then yeah, I mean, that, that that's the part that is the most terrifying to me is that people who believe completely evidence-free conspiracy theories about the 2020 election are going to possibly be in charge of the elections in the states of Arizona, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. 
three of the key swing states in an election where there's maybe only six or seven states. Oh, I, I think Nevada is, I think in Nevada as well. So, so in four out of the seven major swing states in any election that really determine the outcome of a presidential election, it is possible that after next week, the people who will be in charge of running those elections believe that when an election happens, if a Republican wins, it was legitimate. And if a Democrat wins, it was stolen. And they are the people in charge of determining how elections are run and determining who the victors of elections are. And they have at their disposal a media apparatus that is completely willing to say whatever <laughs> whatever those people might say, regardless of evidence. They will not push back on it. They will not ask questions insisting on evidence. There are in place judges in some places, not all, but there are in place judges who might be inclined to go along with these election kind of deniers takes on how elections are su supposed to run. 2020, what happened is that Trump tried to make up all kinds of things about the election being stolen and lost in 65 out of 66 court cases, I believe the number was, right? So whenever it came to the, you know, the rubber hitting the road of like having to present your evidence and make your, make your argument in a court of law rather than the court of public opinion, it fell flat. That might still be a safeguard that would protect against something like this. You know, I mean, anyone who's lived in a country that has slid into authoritarianism is very familiar with how all of this works. The connection between political leaders who are willing to say or do anything in order to get power, who don't regard themselves as being accountable to the electoral will of the people, who find ways to utilize the media and the court system to kind of support their power and back their claims. And once you get into that sort of situation, it becomes harder to get out. And if a large swath of the public really does believe that version of reality being put forward by those leaders, then country sort of ceases to be a, a, de a democracy in a kind of meaningful way, I would say. So when President Joe Biden said the democracy will be on the ballot in the midterm elections, is that something that you are really concerned about? Or is it a bit of a campaign exaggeration to attract voters? Or perhaps is it both? I think it's both. Well, you know, I mean, nothing is for certain. You, no one knows what what lay in the future. So that if Carrie Lake gets elected governor in Arizona and there's an election and a Democrat wins it, that she would certify that and she would follow the law and follow the electoral results. That, that's very possible. Um, and in which case, then, you know, then she has done her duty under the Constitution and under the law. And maybe she's just saying these things about the 2020 election because she knows that's what her voters want to hear. So I, I, you know, there's always a chance that that, that, that that is what could happen. I, I don't think that chance is very high. There's also a chance that, um, you know, so in Oregon, so I live in Oregon, and there's a chance that a Republican will win the governor's race in Oregon, which would be the first time since 1982 that a Republican won a race for governor in the state, because it is a very blue state and has been a very blue state. A lot of that has to do with the way the Republican Party in the state moved pretty radically to the right, starting in the 1980s and 90s, especially around cultural issues like gay rights and so on. Anyway, the person running as a Republican right now is presenting herself as a more moderate 
uh, version of the Republican Party. Some of, she doesn't talk about Donald Trump that much. She doesn't talk a lot about the 2020 election. And so it'll be interesting to see if she wins, what she does about it, because there's a lot of energy in her party to change the way elections are done in Oregon. There's a lot of election deniers in the Republican Party in Oregon. We have a mail-in mail-in voting system that, ironically, Republicans put in place in the 1990s against Democratic resistance. And mail-in voting has been incredibly successful, very low levels of fraud, high turnout. It's been just remarkable success. And there have been Republicans who have administered the system who say, this is great. You know, this works really wonderfully. And it's good for democracy because it makes it easier for people to vote and increases turnout. The Republican line on voting mail-in ballots today is that tremendous election fraud that benefits Democrats. And that's why a Republican hasn't been elected in the state is because of the way we vote. Therefore, we need to stop doing the things that we do that encourage greater voter turnout and make it harder for people to vote in order to have a more true counting of the ballots is the argument. There's no empirical evidence to support this. There doesn't need to be because it's an article of faith. And basically, these are folks who think that the real Oregonians would vote for Republicans if they had a choice, but the elections continue to be stolen from them uh, in Oregon, even though you know, I think Joe Biden won by a margin of 56 to 40 in 2020. So a 14-point win, which is pretty significant. But there's significant numbers of Republican local activists who firmly believe that it was probably stolen from Donald Trump. Talking about democracy, if I may ask, this is something which is maybe a theoretical debate, but it's a bit fascinating for me, I have to say. That some people like to argue that America is not a democracy, but a republic. And I have to admit that this argument never made much sense to me, except being an attempt to make the issue of protecting democracy less important. How do you see this? That meme has a very long history that goes back to the 1920s and 30s. It is the case that the American political system has a lot of counter-majoritarian checks built into it. So there's the Supreme Court that has the power to overrule legislation that is Seem to be in opposition to the Constitution. There's the Senate that is a very counter-majoritarian institution. Even within that counter-majoritarian institution of the Senate, there's then the filibuster, which makes it even more counter-majoritarian. Then there's the fact that a bill has to pass both the House and the Senate. And then it can go to the presidency, who then has the power to veto it. So, and this was, you know, intentionally built into the system for better or for worse by the people who wrote the constitution. So people take that part of our constitutional system and say, therefore, America is not a democracy. Yeah, because the democracy at the end is a majoritarian system. Majoritarian rule without any checks and balances. And that is not necessarily how any advocate of democracy defines what democracy is. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Right. So they create this kind of straw figure of just completely unchecked majoritarian democracy, where you just turn everything and it becomes a plebiscite. Like, let's just everybody vote on tax rates and whoever gets 51% wins, right? Which is not how things run or how anyone proposes that things would run in the United States. One argument I've, I've heard people use or a metaphor that people have used for this is saying America's a republic, not a, not a democracy, is a bit like saying that's not a dog, it's a collie. And in the late 18th century, the argument was that America, it was a question of how democratic America's Republican government should be. 
right? And so democracy was seen as a value, by, and the idea is that a republic is ruled by the people, popular sovereignty, and then you create a mechanism through which the will of the people can express itself politically. And the, and the idea was that, sorry, that's my cat in the background. I don't know if you can hear him. A um, bit, yeah, I like cats. <laughs> <laughs> um sorry he's he's in his morning mood um <laughs> not a problem uh, sorry let me say let me let him out okay <laughs> he'll be quiet okay he's outside now what's his name odie is his oh, name okay um, he's pretty sweet I'm so, but in the morning yeah my he, apologies to odie that <laughs> i'm <laughs> i'm oh that's fine he, i'm he ruining i'm ruining his uh, morning routine yeah <laughs> Okay, so and so therefore the the idea was that um, America should aspire to have institutions that are as democratic as possible. These institutions that further rule by this abstraction that is the people. In the 1930s and 40s, the meme of America as a republic, not a democracy, was utilized in opposition to the New Deal, which was FDR's kind of expansion of the federal government in the name of furthering the interests of ordinary Americans over and against the interests of, the, of a kind of wealthy elite in the context of the Great Depression of the 1930s. And so the people who were opposed to this expansion of government power in the name of serving the interests of ordinary citizens were quite terrified that basically this was the beginnings of communism in America. As they saw it, what was happening was that democratic politicians like Franklin Delano Roosevelt were using popular policies, redistributive, economically redistributive policies in order to cement their own kind of dictatorial power. And because more people were poor than there were rich people, the theory was that this power of numbers would basically be used to plunder the property of those who had it in the name of redistributing it to those who did not. And so therefore, in order to protect the interests of those who held property, there needed to be checks upon the kind of majoritarian power of a kind of democratic government. And so this fed into the kind of anti-communism of the 1950s and 1960s, this idea that American liberalism was basically a Trojan horse for communism. And so once you, once you start talking about democracy in the context of a workplace or in the context of economics or in the context of a household or in the context of other kind of social settings, you immediately open the door to a kind of Marxist revolutionary takeover of everything we hold dear in America. Uh, and so therefore, defending counter-majoritarian republics as they see it is a way to protect uh, what they perceive as American tradition and America's heritage of freedom. America is a republic, not a democracy was a very common and favored phrase for the John Birch Society, which was a far-right conspiratorial organization that started in the late 1950s and then went into the 1960s. It's it's just become a very simplistic meme that people use, usually in the name of fighting against things like the civil rights movement and the kind of creation of greater racial equality in the U.S., fighting against the Equal Rights Amendment and the creation of greater gender equality in the U.S. So they basically see these things as like, well, fine, like a lot of people might support this stuff. A lot of people might like this. You might get a majority to agree with it. 
but it, that doesn't make it right. And that doesn't make it politically acceptable because what is right for the country to do is not discerned by the majority will. What is right for the country to do is discerned in some other kind of mechanism through which the Republic represents some truer, deeper, more kind of permanent vision of what is right and true and good. It's not a coincidence that a lot of the folks who think this way are also evangelical fundamentalists uh, or sort of fundamentalist Christians. Why is that a coincidence? How do they perceive this? To their mind, the right to private property is something that is kind of supported by God. Right, that these are principles that God has ordained. And the founders were just smart enough to perceive what are these timeless truths that God has kind of created the world based upon. And so it doesn't matter whether, you know, you want to vote to change certain things, for example, like marriage, right? So they might say that like God has decreed that marriage is between a man and a woman. You might want to vote to change that, but that doesn't make it different. That doesn't make it right. Uh, in, in their mind, this kind of stable kind of truth that exists in the world is something that a political body should strive to make real and realize in the world. I said when I asked you about attack on Paul Pelosi that, yeah, there were still some Republicans willing to say, I would say the right things. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, we have been also talking about Donald uh, Trump Jr. So let's talk a bit about Donald Trump Sr. Was mm -hmm. the Republican Party hijacked by Donald Trump or the party or at least the significant part of the GOP has been maybe basically waiting for somebody like him? I would agree with the latter. I think there's long been a tradition of kind of far right illiberalism, we might call it, in the Republican Party, segments of the population that do not believe in multiracial democracy in a meaningful way, segments of the population who do not believe in religious pluralism. And those segments of the population weren't necessarily majorities. Again, I'm just talking about the last, say, 20 or 30 years. But the, the leadership class of the Republican Party bought into what we might call the kind of post-World War II consensus narrative about what America is. So that, you know, if you look in the 80s, Ronald Reagan, who had ties to all sorts of far-right groups and was himself kind of a product of a very far-right political movement. But in his public statements, um, he was generally quite careful to make it clear that he believed that America was a nation of immigrants, that America is a nation committed to the idea of ethnic and racial pluralism, diversity, that America is a world in which there is a nation in which there are many different religions and no one religion can claim supremacy over any other. And, you know, whether he fully bought into those ideals and actually lived them out is another question. But these were the kind of unquestioned assumptions that every political figure just voiced, even though they knew that large numbers of people who were voting for them did not agree and did not buy into those ideals. And what, so what Donald Trump did, and so I, I often go back to this moment, there's a very sort of famous moment in the 2008 election with John McCain, where he was giving a talk uh, to an audience and a woman stood up and said, I don't trust Barack Obama. He's a Muslim. And John McCain stopped her and he said, man, that's not true. I disagree with him about many things, but he is a Christian. He is an American patriot. Uh, he loves this country. He cares about this country. And I have different ideas than he does about how, how to do that. But, but it, that's not true. It, that is not true what you're saying. 
And a lot of people held that up. And it, 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 was, a, it was a moment of great like statesmanship. That was exactly the proper thing for him to be saying. This is also the guy that chose Sarah Palin as his vice president, who went around talking about you know the pro-America parts of America, um, you know, and and that kind of thing. So you know, the Republican Party has always had this kind of duality to it, where there's a kind of stoking of these angry, illiberal energies that focus animosity and hatred onto certain classes of other Americans, whether they be immigrants, whether they be people of color, whether they be women, LGBTQ folks, right? That there's a, and and there's much to be gained electorally from that. In 1988, George Herbert Walker Bush, the ad that he ran that was probably the most pivotal ad that won him that election in 1988, arguably, was the Willie Horton ad that was an advertisement that accused his opponent, Michael Dukakis, of having released a prisoner who was black and his darkened photo was right there in the ad, um, who then, when he was released from prison, committed uh, more crimes. It was factually true. Michael Dukakis had nothing to do with the release of this person from prison. He was not involved. Of course, he did not condone this or, or support this. But the idea was just to scare white voters with the idea that if you elect Democrats, you will be a victim of crime on the, at the hands of a black person. And George Herbert Walker Bush knew this, his people knew this, and they went ahead and they did it. And it worked because racism is a very powerful kind of force in American political life. But it's also the kind of force and energy that if you stoke it and amplify it and encourage people to dig deeper into it, much like anti-Semitism, it can have really terrible democracy destroying uh, effects down the road. And so th that's where I, I think there was a certain reserve or hesitation on the part of the Republican leadership class to really dig fully into those strategies of kind of divide and conquer, I guess you could call it. And, you know, Donald Trump being the guy that he is, that's his entire way of being in the world, right, uh, is to stoke people's anger and resentments in order to further his own advantage. And so he stepped into a situation where the party was kind of ripe for that, where there was a base that had been primed for it by decades of really angry right-wing radio and television by folks like Rush Limbaugh um, and others. So Donald Trump, who had no sense of restraint or decorum or propriety at all, and no understanding of the norms of political behavior and no respect or regard for them, just like a bull in a china shop, just kind of walked in and, and did this. This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe, listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all the other platforms. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on Coffee. For the link, see also a description of this episode. Thank you for listening and stay tuned.